Turn to the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 5 is where we're going to be. There are occasions in the first few chapters of Exodus where you find a scene or a dialogue that is one that spans a number of chapters. We've seen that already in chapter 3 and 4. You see it again here in chapter 5 because it's difficult to divide the section that we turn to this morning. In many ways, it really is one section from verse 1 of chapter 5 all the way through verse 7 of chapter 7. But to make sure we squeeze all the truth that we can out of it, we're just going to work through 24 verses this morning, which means verse 1 of chapter 5 through verse 1 of chapter 6. So let me read that text for us and then pray for our time and we'll begin. Let's hear now as God speaks to us through His perfect word. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. They said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks they made in the past you shall impose upon them, and shall no means, by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw for yourself wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work and your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Yahweh, or to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. And he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task, each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord, look upon you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? 
For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that your Spirit would guide us this day, that he would open our hearts, open our minds to receive this truth. Lord, we need its comfort. We need its conviction. We need your kindness, for you know that we are a dying people. So sustain us, we pray, as we hear. You know I'm a dying preacher, and so open my mouth that I might speak rightly and boldly. Lift our gaze together that we might look on Jesus Christ. We pray everything in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you will be able to think back to where you were in September of 2001. I was on the tiny little island of Tobago, Trinidad and Tobago, getting ready to play in the Under-17 World Cup. I was there with 17 other Guys from around the country, we had lived together for the previous two years, training for this great contest, and our expectations were high going into the tournament. Uh, Hopes were rising. Uh, Our first game was scheduled for September 14th, but then, of course, a few days before, the September 11th attacks hit, and almost all of our families were grounded in North America, unable to come down and root for us, and we began to look around at each other and think, This isn't the way it was supposed to go. We'd march out of our hotel rooms in the morning and be greeted there by a Trinidadian militiaman who was there to protect us. This wasn't the way it was supposed to go. On September 14th, we gathered for our first game in a rather empty stadium and lost to Japan, one to nothing. And in the locker room afterwards, we looked around at each other and thought this wasn't the way it was supposed to go. We subsequently lost the next two games, crashed out of the World Cup in three games, leaving as quickly as we came, and we looked at each other on the way back saying, this wasn't the way it was supposed to go. And I tell you that because what we come to today in chapter 5 is the initial battle, the beginning of the great contest between Pharaoh, who is the god in Egypt, and Yahweh, who is the god over Egypt. And by the end of our text, we find Israel, we find Moses himself, uh, crying out, speaking. This wasn't the way it was supposed to go. And to help you understand the depth of despair to which they have fallen by the end of our text, you need to recognize the heights to which they had risen at the end of chapter 4, which we saw two weeks ago. You notice Moses and Aaron, they came back to Egypt, and look at verse 31 of Exodus 4. The people believed Moses and Aaron as they preached the good news of redemption and saw the God-ordained signs. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their head and worshipped. And yet what you find in our text today is that brief glimmer of hope vanishes seemingly in a few weeks, perhaps even a few days. That the light is swallowed up by the darkness. That anguish now has removed any sense 
of delight in what is coming and freedom from Egypt. And so what you want to see this morning is the reality of God is testing His people. God is putting them in difficulty to show that they need to trust in Him and Him alone, but they're not going to trust in Him in the way they ought. And kids, it's even important for you to recognize that what you see in Exodus chapter 5 is, particularly in Moses' life, is that increased obedience and faithfulness to God doesn't make his life get any easier. His life actually gets quite worse. It's harder. Sometimes, isn't it true, when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, it seems that things only keep piling up in worse and worse fashion. And so what we're going to see today is this great theme of painful suffering prepares the way for powerful salvation. Because if you know anything about Scripture, it's ordinarily true, isn't it? That it's only as we begin to truly experience the depths of pain that we realize the power that is ours in the Lord. Because it's only in Him. That it's in times of suffering that we finally find ourselves on the pathway and highway to salvation. I remember the time five years ago when I got a call in the middle of the night. And it was a dear sister in the church that had called and said, her husband, a dear brother in the church, he had died suddenly of heart failure and I raced off to the hospital. And just as I was entering in the ER doors, she was walking out and I grabbed her and gave her a hug. And the first thing she said, I'll never forget, I don't know why this is happening. Israel doesn't know why this is happening. Moses doesn't know why this is happening. Perhaps you look in your life right now and you might ask the same question. I don't know why this is happening. Well, I hope by the end of our study today, you'll have new reasons for trust. Even in the midst of uncertainty, you'll have new reasons for faith in God. So we'll just walk through our text with the main characters in mind. First, we'll see Pharaoh's rejection. Secondly, Israel's affliction that leads to, thirdly, Moses' question. So Pharaoh's rejection that leads to Israel's affliction, which causes Moses' question. Look again, Pharaoh's rejection begins, notice verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, students, you're meant to see this as the first shots in the great spiritual battle that ensues in Exodus. This is the opening salvo. Yahweh comes along and says, let my people go. It's a great contest, isn't it, the gods there in Egypt? Because again, if you were Pharaoh at this time, certainly even if you were an Egyptian citizen, you saw Pharaoh as the divine representative of the great god Horus there on earth. And here comes another God, the God of the Israelites, the God of the Hebrews, declaring sovereignty over that people. No, Pharaoh, they don't worship you, because again, underscore the sovereignty, let my people go, that they would worship me. So kids, do you think Pharaoh is going to respond to this demand with submission? Probably not you got two shepherd-like figures showing up in his court saying, Hey, Yahweh says, let the Israelites go. Oh, of course, Pharaoh responds negatively as God said he would. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh 
that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know, Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And because we don't know the tone of how Pharaoh said this, we don't know really what he was meaning. Because it's possible in the original, he, he, he's speaking out of ignorance, which would sound something like, wouldn't it, well, I don't know who Yahweh is. Well, why then would I listen to him? But it sure seems on balance as the chapters ensue that it wasn't out of ignorance Pharaoh spoke, but arrogance. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to and obey Him? And kids, you want to recognize this simple question. Who is the Lord is the question in Exodus. Moses himself asked it, didn't he, in chapter 3. God appears to him in the burning bush. Moses, go back to Egypt and redeem my people. Who shall I say sent me? So what happens then in Exodus? Every ensuing chapter, every ensuing action, every ensuing miracle and wonder and revelation of God is meant to answer the question, this is who Yahweh is. And you could be in here today and you might be asking similar questions yourself. You know, who is the Lord? Why do Christians believe what they believe? Why exactly is it that the church believes in this? Or what is it that Christ's church believe? And if that's you today, I hope and even pray that you would stay with us in coming weeks and months. Because few books, if any, in the Old Testament answer that question so powerfully as Exodus. Who is the Lord? But underscore even Pharaoh's response as one of him being the seed of the serpent. Remember, the great war really is between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, jutting forth from Pharaoh's crown is nothing other than a serpent. And doesn't his question sure sound a lot like Satan's word to Eve in the Garden of Eden? Well, who's the Lord that you should listen and obey? Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? that I should listen and obey. And we dare not look down on people like Eve and Pharaoh in that way, because isn't it true that every time you sin, at a baseline level, your heart says, who is the Lord that I should listen to and trust in His Word? It appears as though, as the way the text moves on, that Moses and Aaron thought that they would show up in Pharaoh's court, that they would make this demand, and suddenly he would release the people. But Pharaoh has answered their show of strength with his own show of strength, and they seem to backpedal a bit into a little bit more diplomatic language. Notice verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, they said, please, let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Now, if you notice the end of verse 3, and you've been with us in recent weeks, have, have you seen anywhere, can you recall anywhere in chapter 3 and 4 where God said, Moses, if Pharaoh does not let you go, and he doesn't listen to your words, then I will fall upon you with pestilence and sword. Well, God's never said that. Maybe it's because of Moses' experience at the end of chapter 4, where there in the night he showed up ready to kill Moses because his children weren't circumcised. But it seems as though Moses has inserted something here that's going to be quite important for what we're going to see later on. But you know the story, verse 4 through 8, is pretty simple, isn't it? Pharaoh says, well, if you got so much time on your hands that you need to take this worship retreat vacation, 
Well, then it just means you're lazy, idle workers, and so you might as well gather your own straw. So now you've got to gather your own straw, make the same number of bricks, get back to work, he says. But there's a ruthless intent, isn't there, in his cold, calculated logic. Notice verse 5. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. You could almost substitute the end of that sentence by saying, and pay no regard to God's words. How true it is that one of Satan's favorite tactics is distraction. To get you so occupied, perhaps with burdens and sorrows, perhaps with difficulties and duties, that then you begin to never listen to God anymore. Life is so full of responsibilities, maybe some that are necessary, some others that aren't, that you don't listen to Him anymore. And kids, students recognize that sometimes Satan is much more subtle. He doesn't have to work so hard for you to just forget about God. Well, you only need to distract you with a love of things in the world, schools and sports and things on a screen in order that you might not listen anymore to God's words. This is Pharaoh's rejection. I'm sure many of you, if you got out into an ordinary neighborhood later on this week, on Saturday, you'd see no small number of children dressed in unusual costume garb, you know, walking around uh, the streets. And some of those kids, you'll recognize their new persona and identity pretty easily. Superheroes, sports figures, well-known characters from stories or, or movies. And animals might show up along the way, but there certainly would be be others that you would look at and think to yourself, and maybe ask, who are you? And I had friends that were that way every time that Halloween came around. I remember my fifth grade year, we had spent the summer uh, kind of all enraptured with the story of The Hobbit. And so we spent no small number of summer hours in the afternoon on our own pretend imaginative universe of, of Middle Earth. And so when the time came for dressing up in October, they marched through the community streets. One, this great basketball player as Bilbo Baggins, and the other, this great football player as another than Thorin Oakenshield. And this, of course, was at a time when no one knew who these characters were at a, at a popular level. So they got stopped everywhere they went. Who are you? And they had to explain it. And so we often found ourselves talking about this story to friends in the neighborhood and neighbors. And we had a favorite chapter the three of us did. And those of you that have read The Hobbit before might know this chapter. It's quite well known if for no other reason than its very title. It's called Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire as the main characters seem to go from one tragedy and travesty to the next. And it seems like Israel's experience is the exact same in Egypt, isn't it? They go from out of the frying pan into the fire as you move from Pharaoh's rejection to Israel's affliction. Look at verse 12 and 14 again. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? I want you to see here, notice afresh how the world's burdens weigh down the soul with such heaviness. Here's Pharaoh's burden that is sucking the life out of Israel, that's crushing their soul. And isn't it true that anywhere that you would look in the world's rulers, places in the world, as they put a burden on you, that it's going to be a heavy one? 
the great news of Jesus Christ is that He says, My yoke is easy and my what? Burden is light. That He alone can give rest and relief in the midst of incredibly difficult responsibilities. Uh, but strikingly and significantly, notice these Hebrew foremen, they don't come to the Lord for rest and relief. To whom do they go? Pharaoh himself. Look at verse 15 and 16. The foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks! And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. A student, you want to circle that word in verse 15 at the beginning of cried. It's a, it's a really important one in Exodus. It first showed up all the way back in chapter 2 at the very end, verse 23. Uh, which says, Israel cried to the Lord for rescue. But to whom are they crying now? Not the Lord. Their sinful overlord named Pharaoh. It almost seems as though Satan's scheme has distracted them such from God's word that now it's so successful that they've even forgotten God altogether. That they don't go to him. Pharaoh. Help us. Save us. It's those that are falling upon Pharaoh for mercy, not the Lord Himself. Pharaoh, of course, you'll notice, verse 17 through 19, he has no interest in listening to their pleas for help. He says, yes, you're idle. You are idle. You are lazy. Get back to work. Get those bricks made because otherwise you're going to be beaten once again. Get out of my house. Well, just as they're coming out of the house, notice they turn to someone else. Again, they turned to Pharaoh and he didn't help. Haven't yet turned to God. And so they turn not to, but turn on God's leaders. Look at verse 20 and 21. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And they came out from Pharaoh and said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The initial verbs in verse 20 are meant to show the contrast in this moment. Because you could translate it as saying about Moses and Aaron, they were standing to greet the foreman. So it's this tone of welcome. They're standing to greet the foreman. But the language here of the foreman met Moses and Aaron is often a military term. It's used very frequently for assailing someone or attacking someone. It's meant to show us the juxtaposition between God's servants and the people of Israel. That they're not turning to God, they're turning on God's servants, ready to call down curses upon them. And of course, we don't know the timeline, do we, uh, of Exodus. We don't know how much time has passed from that height of optimism and hope at the end of chapter 4 to now this kind of despair and this, this dungeon of doubt in chapter 5. It, it may have been only days. It's certainly no more than just a few weeks. And the Israelites have gone from listening to Moses and Aaron and worshiping accordingly to now calling down curses on their heads. You have caused this. Go back to the land from where you came. Don't you know that you're only stirring up trouble? We don't want you here anymore. I've read church history enough. I've been in ministry enough. 
uh, to know that whenever difficulty comes to God's people, usually the first casualties are the leaders in that community. As one commentator would even say of this part of Exodus, it's not for the last time that the congregants will vigorously quarrel and condemn their pastors, such as Israel's affliction, which causes then, verse 20 and 23, or 22 and 23, Moses' question. October 16th, just a few weeks ago, in some circles of our small part of the Christian world, there were some celebrations going on because it was the 485th anniversary of Hugh Latimer's martyrdom. If you don't know anything about Hugh Latimer, he was a great preacher, full of Christ in the 16th century, incredible courage and boldness. There was a time when King Henry VIII told Latimer to to come and preach on a Sunday. And he came and preached and promptly offended the king in his preaching. And so King Henry said, "You, you need to come back next Sunday and apologize. And so Hugh Latimer prepared, and he he showed back up the next Lord's Day, and he began his sermon that was supposed to be an apology. He began his sermon by impersonating things he had heard along the way. Hugh Latimer, do you not know from whom you speak this day, or to whom you speak this day? He is the high and mighty monarch, the king, most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend him. And Latimer proceeded to preach the exact same sermon. He preached the previous Sunday with considerably more energy, with no apology attached to it whatsoever. And people began to question the wisdom of this man in speaking this way to the king. And many people throughout the ages and centuries have questioned the wisdom of Moses in speaking to the king of kings as he does now. Notice verse 22 and 23. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. And maybe you know why? It seems like many people have often thought that Moses has sinned in speaking to God this way. He's called into question God's sovereignty. He's called into question God's sense of justice. Even the end of verse 23 or the middle uh, seems to attribute to God the truth that he is the author of evil. Why have you done evil to this people? But I don't think that's true for a few reasons, one of which is I think that Moses is speaking out of just understandable bewilderment. Lord, if this was what you had in mind when you sent me, why did you even send me? Everything is only getting worse. I suppose some of you may have been in a time of suffering, sorrow, perhaps even now in hardship and hurt, and you too are bewildered. God's bitter providence has left you bewildered and you, you stand back and say, why? And I was talking with brother and sister even earlier this week that have been in that situation. And they even said, why has God brought this into our life? What Moses is doing here is something that we find all throughout Scripture among the most holy saints is that they're not complaining about God as much as they're complaining to God. That they're offering up a lament Recognizing, Lord, you alone can answer this problem. Why don't you do anything about it? You alone can give power to redeem from bondage and slavery. Why aren't you bringing about the freedom you promised? 
And certainly the best reason why we can be certain that Moses wasn't sinning is the way God responds to him. Notice the final verse of our text, verse 1 of chapter 6. But Yahweh said to Moses, Now you will see. You shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Moses. And isn't this what often happens in Exodus? Just wait and watch. Just stand and see. It's about to begin. What's about to begin? Painful suffering, giving the way to God's powerful salvation. Uh, kids, you may have heard the statement, it's a cliche, isn't it, before about knowing is half the battle. What you need to know about Exodus is it tells us that knowing is the battle. This entire book is here that we might know the Lord. Pharaoh comes along and says, who is the Lord? And if you were just to take our text today, our 24 verses, how would you answer that question with this text? Who is the Lord? And how would you give an answer from chapter 5 into the beginning of chapter 6? Well, I want to give you two answers as we begin to close. Who is the Lord? What must you know about God in this passage, number one, know that God brings tests of difficulty. Know that God brings to His people tests of difficulty. And I want you to understand His purposes for those tests, that you might treasure the tests. Because God, as we even read earlier from James chapter 1, He intends the suffering and the testing to produce steadfastness. Using language even from Romans chapter 5, that the endurance would bring about character and the character would bring about hope. Think back to a time when you've been tested. Maybe you sit in here this morning, listen even today, and you say, I'm in a time of testing right now. Has it produced steadfastness, hope, character, endurance? Or perhaps you're like me, often when you examine yourself in light of God's tests, you realize the degree to which you failed God's test. Because that's the great disappointment of Exodus chapter 5. The disappointment isn't that Pharaoh decides or refuses to not let God's people go. He refuses to send them off on their wilderness worship. The great disappointment is that Israel doesn't listen and still trust in the Lord. Yes, we always knew Pharaoh was not going to listen and obey God. But Israel should still have trusted and obeyed the Lord. And yet they didn't. They question God. They rail against God's leaders as Israel so often does. They have failed the test. No, number one, that God tests His people with difficulty. Number two, the good news answer to this is... Number two, know that God, I'm sorry, that you can trust God in the uncertainty. Know that you can trust God in the uncertainty. Moses is essentially uncertain, isn't he, in verse 22 and 23? That's just the overflow of an uncertain heart. Lord, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Maybe you, likewise, find yourself in a place where you're uncertain. So much of the Christian life seems uncertain. We don't know where God is going with the next twist and turn. We don't know why He has brought this providence into our life. But Moses should have known where God was going. 
Because you see again at the end of verse 3 in chapter 5, let us go, lest God fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. That's as though Moses is saying, Pharaoh, save us from Yahweh. Well, Moses, just one chapter before, he had heard what was going to happen. He had heard what he should say when Pharaoh refused. Flip back to chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. Again, God is giving his directions to Moses as he and Aaron are soon going to make their way back to Egypt. And he says in verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. Moses said that in verse 1. As God said, even in chapter 3, Moses should have known Pharaoh was going to be hard-hearted. So, verse 23 continues, If, Pharaoh, you refuse to let him go, it's not the punishment's going to fall upon my people, is it? It's the punishment is going to fall upon you. I will kill your firstborn son. This is what Yahweh means when He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, You shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For how is it that he will finally drive out Israel from Egypt? God will take his firstborn son. And so it's here you have to recognize the good news that's found in this passage for people like you and me that fail God's tests. Because the Lord sent his firstborn son, his only son, Jesus Christ, who would be tested and he would be perfect in trust. So that, just as God says to Moses with certainty, I will take his firstborn son so that he will give you freedom. He can now say to you and me in Jesus Christ, I will take my firstborn son so that I will give you freedom. So the good news, the gospel to which our text points is that it's only through Christ's painful suffering that we can receive God's powerful salvation. To whom are you turning today? To whom are you looking and listening today? Let's pray together. Father, we know that you have tested us and we have been found wanting. We thank you then for the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. The mercy that you offer us in sending your Son to die in our place. That you lovingly and he willingly gave down his life. That we might know your salvation that saves us from an eternal suffering that we might know your power that delivers us from eternal pain. Father, we want to listen. We want to look. We want to turn to you in the midst of our grief and our sorrow that you might comfort us in your certain promise. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond to God's word. As people so familiar with sorrow and suffering, uh, trials and tribulations, but nevertheless know the good news that is found in Jesus Christ, let's sing hymn 691, It Is Well.